I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. My guest today is a very dear friend, Kim Ross. Kim is the director for international productions in Warner Brothers Entertainment. And when we first met, I thought that we were going to talk about TV and entertainment and the impact that those things have on our lives. But what happened is that Kim shared her story. And her story inspired me so much that I thought it would be useful for others to hear it. I would say every young lady in her 20s or 30s could benefit from hearing how life took its ups and downs and challenges came through to Kim. A story that started with love as then a hard-driving executive insisted to go through life and life became tough. And I think our outcome of how Kim could find herself through the hardship was truly inspiring for me. Kim, thank you for being here and thank you for willing to share that story with us. Thank you for a wonderful introduction, Mo. Really, really lovely. Thank you. I'm going to just jump right in. So there is this gorgeous 18-year-old in college, a love story. You meet a wonderful person, you spend time together, and then you get married. And it doesn't turn out to be what you expected, but you hang in there. Tell me about that. So, as you said, yes, I met my childhood sweetheart when I was 18. And uh, how can I describe it? It was love at first sight, the most beautiful smile, great laugh. And he just made me feel really special. I felt like... I'd never felt before. And I was in my first year at university and he was just finishing his last year. So we only had a year together there. And then we kept our relationship going from long distance. So he then moved back to the north of England and I was based in the west of England. And we saw each other every couple of weeks and spoke a bit. Anyway, as the I then finished after my third year and I was always quite independent anyway so I then chose to live with a cousin of mine and he then transferred from the north of England down to London and started to put slight restrictions on when we see each other sort of you know you can only see me certain times in the week and let's not speak so often and I just sort of went with that I thought okay that's what you do you're finding your way in your relationship we're still young and it's all about compromising so I guess this is just part of the compromising even though that wasn't really it didn't feel right for me I just sort of went along with that and I've always been quite a free-spirited person upbeat like to have a lot of fun and there were things that I wanted to do in life that he was less keen on doing and vice versa but and so it seemed that we were doing a lot of things separately and not much together but I just thought that's what you do 
That's what you do. <laughs> right, you compromise. Yes. And even supporting each other during our careers, you know, we watched each other go through our education and I was always so proud of him. Didn't, looking back, didn't really feel like I had the support I had the support from my friends and family, but actually didn't really have the support from him with what I was achieving. Not that I needed that validation, but I guess I always just thought if you're in a relationship with someone, that's part of what you do. That's what you do. This is really interesting, Kim. I love many parts of your story, especially chapter three for those listening. But it's so common in today's world. And I say that with a lot of respect that we sacrifice, we compromise for what we call love. It's like, you know, he's wonderful, wonderful smile. I'm getting a companion that I met and I fell in love with. I'm attached to him in a way or another. And that's what you do. I can let that thing go and I can let that thing go. And we go on with life and we go deeper and deeper. You actually got married. That's right. And we got married after 12 years of being together. Oh, that's um, so what you do. So that's what you do. <laughs> All of my friends were getting married and I thought, I'm hoping that soon it will be me and then I can tick that box too. And we had a beautiful wedding in Italy where we had our friends and we had a weekend with everyone there together. And And I felt loved then, but was I compromising? If someone had said to me when I was 15, 16 years old, actually think about what's your moral compass? What are the things in life that are really important to you. I now call them my non-negotiables. What are those things? Is it integrity? Is it kindness, emotional availability? What are those things that you really want? And I think in my teens, after coming out of my education, I was just so hell-bent on my career and focused on the rat race to achieve and have success that I didn't really look, look at what those point that I really wanted to hit were in my relationship. It was just like, we're growing together and this is just what you do. But I didn't really take the time out to examine what I wanted. Yeah. You're not alone in this. I say that very openly, you know, after my wonderful marriage, I spent 28 years with Nibel, wonderful woman, still my best friend. And, you know, I was so blessed to have her. But being with Nibel for that time, I never really understood what I needed in a relationship. And believe it or not, after Nibel, I was so naive, almost like a 16-year-old, not knowing what I deserve, what I need. And so I would go, just like you said, I would do what you do. It's like you meet someone, she's attractive, you know, you see what happens. And you don't really know what you're looking for. And because you don't know what you're looking for, everything seems okay but it doesn't really seem fit. That's right. And I guess I, as I was saying about the pace, I wasn't seeing the subtle signs of emotional abuse that I was experiencing because I was too busy to see them. And so what I then discovered is that in turn became one of the greatest lessons of my life, not only to show me how resilient I am, but to realize my self-worth and that I won't accept that behavior from anybody, that the feelings of utter loneliness and rejection, um, nothing I did felt right from the clothes I wore, the way I drove, the food I'd buy for our home. Everything felt like I wasn't quite hitting the spot. And even if you're a strong person in your work life, 
to have when you come home to the place that should be safe for you, that feeling that it's not quite adequate, actually, it's not quite enough, that slowly over the days, months, years, erodes who you are. And it makes you question yourself until you get to a point where you realize that you can't accept it anymore. And it's destroyed you or trying to destroy you. Listening to you, my heart aches, honestly. I mean, if you can imagine years and years of those little additional pressures and rejections and we let them linger, we let them run because, of course, as we will know from chapter two of your story, you're completely driven. You want to be successful, you want to achieve, you're very responsible. And those little things become background. It's like, it's fine. I can handle that too. And I wonder what your advice would be for every young woman who falls in love and and just runs with it. For you, the relationship was what, 18 years? It was 20 years. 20 years. 20 years, yes. It doesn't matter in my view if it's 20 years or 20 months or 20 weeks, but what would be the signs? What should a young woman look for that is easy for her to discover that this is not right for me? And even though I love him and it's been wonderful, maybe it's not what I should spend 20 years living into. The lessons should be for anyone that is falling in love when they're in their teens or early 20s is to think about what's important to them. Having somebody that's kind should be at the top of their list. Ideally, finding someone that can fulfill their emotional needs. And I'm not saying that your friends can't help and support that, but I think emotional availability in any relationship means that you can sustain your relationship because it's likely to go through peaks and troughs. So finding someone that has that quality, um, someone that will support you, you don't have to be codependent to have support. And you can still be independent and be strong in whatever you choose, the path you do. But if you're aligned with somebody that can be behind you and cheer you on. That is invaluable quality. That's one of my non-negotiables as a matter of fact. So as I grow more and more aware of what matters in a partnership and a relationship, one of the top non-negotiables is the kindness and support between the two partners in good times and tough times, because every relationship will go through ups and downs. And the idea of how am I going to be handled when I'm going through a tough time, struggling at business or being stressed? What kind of support will I receive? And as well, by the way, what kind of support will I receive when life is easy and everything's wonderful and I'm having a good time? Are we going to be focusing on little dramas or are we going to be creating together and building each other? That's exactly right. And I feel having a safe place in your relationship is so important. This is somebody that should be your friend, not your ally. This is somebody that's there through thick and thin. And you should be able to be vulnerable with that person and and share really how you're feeling at all times. And if you're feeling weak, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't want to share that with that person because they should be able to support you. However, there was this wonderful gift, your wonderful daughter, at the end of that relationship. And then by age three, when she was three, you decided you can't take this anymore. And I think once you told me that it was, she opened your eyes, that I shouldn't 
allow this to happen when she is part of my life. I shouldn't have that part of her life. Now you take this, and I think a lot of young ladies and young women go through your chapter one, let's say. Yes. <laughs> but your chapter two is very special because then now you have Lara in your life. She's wonderful. You want to take care of her. And now you are a single mother and you're already a hard driving go-getter, very, very hardworking executive. And now you're more and more responsible. So you work yourself to a very bad place. Tell me about chapter two. I did. In order to keep that roof over our heads, I had to work very hard. Um, I wasn't getting much support financially and it was all down to me. So... I was a freelancer at the time in television and was lucky enough to be offered a opportunity to produce a show in Ireland. And I started the show. It was an eight month job and I was doing my usual thing, going a hundred miles an hour at everything, trying to tick the mother box, tick the career box. And on one occasion I was traveling to Ireland and experienced really bad lower back pain I thought I'm sure it will go just sleep on it it'll be fine and over the days and weeks it got progressively worse to the point where I lost all sensation down my right leg and I couldn't sit down for six months it was the most testing period of my life to date emotionally because it was forcing me to slow down, but I knew that I couldn't because if I did, I wouldn't have had a job. So every week I was taking this flight to Ireland, spending three days there. I used to cry on the flight on the way there and back because I couldn't sit down. The air hostesses were saying, do you want our seats? And you can try and lie on those. I mean, it was horrific when I look back at what I put myself through. And you still did it every week? I did it every week. For six months? Yes. And people that don't know about how television is made, it's quite hard to make a show lying on your back. So I'd be conducting meetings. <laughs> lying on your back. <laughs> with presenters and people from the channel lying on my back. How would they allow that? I mean, how would people just look through that? You're obviously abusing your body. Yes, the people that knew me well could see the pain in my face that my body was enduring. The only way I can describe it was, and I gave birth to my daughter naturally, it was like being in labor every day. And for oh people God. that have, have experienced back pain, they'll I'm sure they'll all be agreeing with me now <laughs> because that's how it feels. And they were very supportive, the people I was working with. They did at times question, do you feel like you can still carry on making this show? And it wasn't negotiable for me. I had to do it. I didn't see a way out. But did you have? I suffer from empathy because I see this happening again over and over for young ladies in their 20s and 30s. It's definitely especially single mothers. So there is that whole idea of I have to rush through life to support my livelihood if I'm independent, to support my daughter if I'm a single mother or my son. And that in reality, we don't take into account all of the other responsibilities. And I have to say, I believe the world is very unfair because a single mother will have to work as hard as anyone else and even harder. But the truth is, 
there is always also that additional layer of fear, of anxiety, of maybe a bit of guilt, like I put my daughter into this, so I might as well step up and keep her safe. Is that reasonable in any way to drive us to labor pains for six months? No, I think there was no other way to support my family at that time because I knew that I needed an income or you make the decision that you're not going to carry on with your career. When you're a freelancer, you're only as good as your last job. So if you're not working, you can be forgotten or there's other people that can quite easily step up to take the roles that are offered. So, But can I ask you a question? How good was that job? The series didn't return. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah, there you go. I think that's enough to know. <laughs> I'd like to think it wasn't down to my back pain that it didn't return. I'd probably say that from the view of someone lying on her back, you did really well. I mean, obviously. It went on air, but yes, it didn't return. So as I said, I wouldn't want to put it down to my back that it didn't return or get recommissioned. But I didn't see it. I was like a hamster on the wheel of continuing. And as you say, that self-destruction, feeling that there's a certain amount of money that I needed to bring in and feeling actually quite a lot of fear around money, that that's the driving force behind the decisions I was making. And I feel for you. I feel for everyone who's going through this. But then life puts its foot down. It does. And when I started reading about lower back pain, I actually discovered the metaphysical messages behind lower back pain of fear, anxiety, loss. So it was a message to me. It was a subtle message. You've got to slow down. You've got to slow down. It is so interesting, actually, the idea. So I had that experience. I went to a Reiki master once and, you know, at the beginning of the session, she goes like, so do you believe in Reiki? And of course, you know me, I'm an engineer. I was like, um... I haven't made up a decision on this. I don't have enough data. So she goes, she smiles, you know, at my weird approach to life. And then she goes like, okay, lie down. And she has a long session, one hour, where I feel incredible, unbelievable things that I've never felt before. Eventually, she sits me down and she says, well, you have five emotional problems. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You're supposed to heal my body. And she says, you know, that idea of you have your emotional self and your physical body and your energetic body and the relationship between them and how your emotions would change your energy, which is what they try to work on in Reiki, but also, you know, manifest in terms of pains in your body. And, and it's quite eye-opening that we do those things to ourselves. So you return from that production. You're now hospitalized. Yes. You had to undergo an operation that took you how long? Uh, the operation was five hours. Mm -hmm. And then? And I remember the surgeon because he knew that for me to agree to have a back operation being so young, it was a big deal. And he knew how fit I was. I always worked out five times a week at least. So he knew that it was debilitating for me. And he came out after the five hour operation and said to me, um, I know you'd want to know that there was nothing you could have done to remove the prolapse disc from your sciatic nerve it was embedded in and you had to have this operation. And I just feel very grateful and thankful that I made a full recovery out of that and got the sensation back in my leg and my foot. So, um, yes, very, very fortunate. But then you rush back into life. Yes, it, there was a message and then once recovered, I was back in, back full throttle Hard to the next driving, production. Next yeah. production, career. Yeah. 
Back on the hamster wheel, yes. Back on the hamster wheel and then life puts its foot down again. Are you okay to talk about that? I am, yes. And that was in 2018. I was due to travel to Canada and Milan for work and went to see an oncologist for a routine checkup. I have them every year for the last seven years, so I know the doctor very well. Normally I go in, it's a very quick physical check of my breasts and off I go. And this time he took a pen and put a marker on my left breast and my heart sank. And he said, I want you to go downstairs and have an MRI now and a mammogram. So I did. And during the MRI, I looked at the radiographer's face and I knew, I knew that it was not good. And I asked him to be honest with me because ultimately they see this all the time. So they know what they're looking for. And I can vividly remember the nurse, the Jamaican beautiful nurse, sort of humming to try and sort of keep me calm. But it felt like I was in the shining um, horror movie because it was slightly scary. And he gave me a letter to take back up to the doctor and up I went and at that point, normally the waiting room was full and I remember walking back up and it was empty. His door was open and I just looked at his face and I sat down and I said, why, why, why me, why? And then I composed myself and said, why not, why not? And he then talked me through the routes that I could take was either to carry on with the NHS or to see him privately and I was fortunate enough that I did have cover from a previous job I was in that I carried on with. So I use that insurance policy because that's what it's there for. There are other people that don't have those opportunities. So let somebody else use the NHS. And I took the private route. So the medical journey began for me being diagnosed with breast cancer. And I do remember saying to him, is it okay if we just delay this because I've got Milan next week for three days and, <laughs> oh, then, and then Canada and he looked at me and said you're not going anywhere Kim he knew me well and then it was the only way I can describe it to you was six weeks of tests like you become a sort of rabbit where you're tested for everything bone scans brain scans they found something on my liver so liver scans and I was there every week seeing him every week for different results and you know they're super thorough and it was wonderful but every time you go in there it was like a new challenge is it, has it spread to my liver or is it just to my breast and then there was one day where I was going to find out the results of a test that I'd have to let me know whether I would need to have chemo for the type of cancer that I had and it turned out that it was estrogen receptive, which means hormonal. And the type of cancer did need chemo. And there was always a breast care nurse when the doctor would give you that type of news. And there was always a doctor there when you'd receive that news. And I always had two friends with me, one that would take notes and one that would listen. Just That's so wonderful. I would advise that for anyone going through a medical process, whether it's good or bad. I feel it's really important if you have a family member there, sometimes it can feel 
too personalized and you just want that slight detachment to process it with other people and then you can share it with family and that was just the route that I chose to take. So this is to me sort of I think a turning point in the Kim that is independent and resilient and running around on her own and can go do everything on her own but you're now starting to see that maybe I should have support. I deserve to have people that I love around me. Before we start to talk about the new Kim, there was this one incident where the old Kim was quite uh, quite uh, assertive. I see. <laughs> yeah, I think that I think people would want to know about that. So Feisty Kim came to one of her appointments where she did find out that she was going to have to receive chemotherapy for her treatment and the breast care nurse at the time handed me a leaflet and said, uh, you should take a read of this so you understand the type of treatment that you're going to be having. And I looked at the leaflet and on the front cover was a woman that, to be honest, looked very depressed. She had a sort of faded white ill-fitted shirt. Her back was turned to the camera and she was showing us the profile of her face with no makeup and a scarf around her head. And she looked very miserable. And I took the leaflet, said thank you very much, walked out of the appointment with my two friends and the nurse and ripped the front cover, this photo, off the leaflet with the woman's face on and threw it in the bin and said, that's not my journey. And the following day was back to see the doctor and felt like I needed to share that with him because that was a real bad judgment call he made and on that situation to give me something like that because he knew who I was. And I said to him, I think a lot of people feel afraid to speak out to medical professionals. And, you know, they are hugely experienced at what they do, but they're not trained to have empathy or know how to deal with lots of different personalities. And I think it's so easy for fear to kick in in these times of, heightened stress when you're dealing with your health but I turned to him and said do me a favor next time don't give me a leaflet with a depressed woman on the front cover when you're telling me that I've got to have keep 12 weeks of chemo because that is not my journey and he sort of had a wry smile on his face and he turned to the nurse and said we've got a difficult one here oh, and I, I yeah horrible. I just slowly recoiled back and my friends knew they were like oh no She's Kim's gunning going. for you Kim <laughs> is gunning you know that Kim has this side and I very slowly said to him I know that you didn't mean to call me difficult because that's not who I am but I am unique and I walked out of the office that day out of the appointment called up his secretary to ask for all my notes to date and in my head, that was his job done. He was wonderful at the diagnosis, but he was not for me to take me through to the next part of my treatment. I couldn't trust someone like that emotionally. He was not on my level. And that felt so empowering. Even if you're not in the private sector having treatment, you're in the NHS, that you've got a voice and you can use it. And if something doesn't feel right to you, you have every right to question it or look to see somebody else. Yeah, but I think what's more important, Kim, I think the message that you somehow humbly 
choose to not say out loud is that you have the right to choose your journey. That is really the turning point. The turning point is I have been run through the hamster wheel for years and years and years to get to this point. And at this point, I'm going to lead. I'm going to make a choice. I am going to heal me. I am going to see how I'm going to move forward. I asked you to join this podcast because I think that's a very inspiring point in anyone's life. The challenge is we wait until life completely steps on us to make that choice. While we could, we could make that choice earlier and say, it's my journey. It's my journey. It's not what I've been told should happen. Even in the situation of being treated for cancer, I can choose, I can choose to choose my journey to, to find my path. That's right. And I never, ever wanted to behave like a victim, which is why I always said, why not bring it on? And I always took on every challenge. And I guess one of the hardest challenges was to share with my daughter the journey that I was about to embark on. And that took real guts and bravery. And I waited till the end of the sort of five week examination process before I knew exactly what the treatment plan was going to be. And I remember choreographing the day my father was going to pick her up from school. So he'd be there. I asked her to come into her room because I had something to share with her. She sat on the bed and I'd always said that we'd be going to America to live and for work. And she said, mommy, are we going to America? And I said, we're not going there quite yet. And I said, I've got some little bad cells which need to be removed and all will be fine. And her eyes, I'll never forget, they filled up and she looked at me and she hugged me so tight and she put out her arm and said, please, mommy, just, just pinch my hand. And I said, why, darling? Why do I need to pinch your hand? She said, just tell me, is this all a dream? Is this all a dream? In such innocent words, but so powerful. And the journey began. And I guess as a mother, I knew that my job was done when at the end of 2018, she was able to turn to me on New Year's Eve and say, do you know what, mummy? This has been the best year ever. I love her. Oh my God, what a gem. And that, I thought, for the hardest year in my life, but best year for her to say that, I thought my job is done as a mother for my child to say that to me. So I feel very proud that she was able to share the journey with me and that I didn't hide any of it from her. You know, I think that's very easy as an adult to think that your kids don't need to know too much detail. And of course they don't, but if they feel shut out from big, events in your life it's more detrimental to them so I really tried to involve her as much as possible I mean she didn't come and see me having treatment but she knew everything that was going on and asked lots of questions about whether I'd lose my hair which I didn't you chose not to remember when you told me that Yes. And I was told that it was a 60-40 chance that I would lose my hair. But if I wanted to try wear something called a cold cap, which freezes your hair follicles during your treatment. And for many people, it's a very painful experience because it's like putting your head in a freezer. But I said, I'm not losing my hair and I won't. It won't happen. And I endured 12 weeks of wearing this cold cap. And I was fortunate the type of treatment 
I was having was a 60-40. Some people, their treatment is more aggressive and they don't stand a chance. But I thought if the odds are near to 50-50, I'm going to give it a go. And I knew I wouldn't. And I didn't lose my hair. It thinned, but I didn't lose it. Oh, no. And now, Kim, you, the audience may not be looking at you, but you're radiating, you're glowing, you're gorgeous. You have your... Thank you, Mo. You look amazing. You look... Thank you, Mo. <laughs> inspiring in so many ways. And I remember when I asked you and I said, so life takes you through that journey, 20 years of marriage, then the hardship of the six months of labor, then cancer, and you survive cancer and, and here you are, would you do it again? And your answer shocked me when you said, oh yeah, it made me the person that I am. That's right. But then you spoke about self-love and said, this was the part that I would change. That's right. In 2018, that year was the discovery of me to love myself more, to understand and accept who I am. And with all my failings and flaws, that I was able to find a way to heal myself, not only through having a conventional medicinal treatment but also taking a functional medicine route so I much to many of my friends amusement started having weekly sound therapy after chemo I did transcendental meditation as a course and practiced that twice a day for 20 minutes I did yoga for cancer I did some CBT courses. I tried everything and anything in that year to really find out more about who I am as a person and realizing that my strength was in stillness and the resilience that I had saw me through that. And I think I needed to go through all those life experiences to realize the strength that I had because I was too fast before to see the strength. I just thought that's what you do. You just survive. You just cope. You know, you just get on with it. You've got no choice. And actually, it took a few people to say to me, but a lot of people don't, Kim. A lot of people don't manage to get through it. So I realized how resilient I was and what a quality and a strength that is. And Phil now proud of that but would I change any of it absolutely not I'm blessed to have a gorgeous healthy daughter and I, I yes, had an I, adventure how about I had, that <laughs> I had many adventures many life adventures yes that's a good way of putting it Mike. and I would say to be open and honest to be where you are today the past is the past now is amazing and I will say in a very clear way you are capable of going through all of those. And I think everyone is. And if we can just take life on, take charge, take responsibility, we can, but should we? Because it's not what you do, to be honest. To live without self-love, without self-worth, without uh, the ability to say, I will put my foot down before life puts its foot down for me. I will seek what I deserve in life I will seek that balance. I will find my time to love me, to treat me well, to reflect and to choose my own journey. So Kim, one last question before we finish. So what's your journey now? What are the things that are going to remain as part of your life? It matters more to me now that I'm 
fulfilling the wellness side of my life, the mind-body discipline, and using my TV creative background and experience to ensure that I'm helping other people. Yeah, and isn't that what it's all about? I think you helped a lot of people today, Kim. I'm so grateful that you joined me. So if you guys want to get in touch with Kim Ross, it's at Miss Kim Ross on Instagram. So it's at M-I-S-S-K-I-M-R-O-S-S. Kim, I can't thank you enough for being here and for sharing your story so openly. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure sharing with you. And for all of you who joined us, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for MoGaudet, Slow Mo, Soul for Happy, or One Billion Happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time to slow down. Until next time, stay happy.